shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall never surrender. Winston Churchill spoke those famous words in the wake of what happens to be this week's topic, Nazi Germany's rapid victory during the French campaign in 1940. My name is Joe Campo. I'm a professor of history, and this is the Harvest of Mars podcast, where we will explore the history of warfare. In this third episode, we will examine the factors that led to the disastrous collapse of France in just six weeks during the Second World War. The obvious fighting spirit in Churchill's famous speech is definitely something to keep in mind for this episode when we contrast it with narratives from within France. The fall of France in 1940 to Nazi Germany is a thorny subject to consider historically because there is emotional baggage and some rather unsettling ramifications that have haunted collective memories in France. What historian Henri Rousseau termed the VC syndrome in his very influential 1991 book. In just six weeks, German armies invaded the Low Countries and knocked them out of the war, swept aside the French army, which was perceived to be the best in Europe, forced the British to evacuate its forces at Dunkirk, occupied Paris established a new collaborationist regime at Vichy and staged a victory parade for Adolf Hitler on the Champs-Élysées. How was it possible that Hitler's Germany could accomplish so much in such a short time? What the Kaiser's Germany could not do in four and a half years, just one generation earlier? The historical situation we are dealing with here might surprise people who are not students of the Second World War. In the collective memory of that conflict, the military might of the vaunted German Blitzkrieg, exemplified by bold attacks with cutting-edge weapons such as armored tanks and Stuka dive bombers, is well known. That imagery and the reputation for German military brilliance have shrouded the historical reality that on paper, the Allied forces were actually superior to the Germans in the 1940 campaign. Collectively, they had more men, more tanks, more guns, more trucks, shorter supply lines, and the benefit of defending their home territory. The Allies had the decided advantage. Thus, the rapid and utter collapse of France begs for an explanation. The key to the French war planning was the infamous Maginot Line, a system of elaborate fortifications built on the border with Germany. Named after the French minister who championed its construction, proponents boasted it was impervious to attack, and perhaps it was. Whatever the potential effectiveness, it didn't matter because the Germans just went around it. The Maginot Line has become synonymous with military stupidity and foolish expenditure only buying a false sense of security. While I like the amusing memes people have made at its expense, this is oversimplified. There were very real reasons why it was built, and failure to understand that contemporary logic means we're just using hindsight rather than historical analysis. 
By measure of population and economy, France was considerably weaker than a potentially rearmed Germany. So its military posture was going to be defensive. Furthermore, the proverbial lessons of history from World War I supposedly proved in modern warfare, defense was superior to attack. The Maginot Line was built by people who sought to study history so as not to repeat its mistakes. Moreover, building a bastion on the border with Germany would do two things the French wanted. Conserve its scarce manpower and direct away a potential German attack into France by compelling them to go through Belgium. That is why the line stopped at the Belgian border. It would have been pointless to extend it because that's where the French wanted to fight the Germans. That was actually pretty sneaky. The Maginot Line almost ensured that in a future war with Germany, the devastated landscape would occur in neutral Belgium rather than in France, as it did in 1914 through 1918. So there was a logic to its construction, and it could be argued that the Maginot Line fulfilled its function. The problem was not the line itself, rather what it represented, an entrenched French mindset unwilling to adapt in understanding modern war. The tank, the plane, the wireless radio, and other innovations offered potentially revolutionary techniques in the military offensive, and yet the French high command was thinking of repeating the First World War. One of the things that strikes me when looking at newsreel footage is just how old the French generals look. Their commander-in-chief, Maurice Gamelan, was 67. Maxime Vagan, who would replace him, was 73. These people were literally born in a different historical era. Meanwhile, the German field commanders like Erwin Rommel and Heinz Guderian were about 20 years younger and showed considerably more dynamism and flexibility in combat. And therein lies a key reason for the explanation of how the strange defeat, to use the words of the most influential commentary of the Battle of France, transpired. Allied military forces outnumbered the Germans. The British and French both had higher rates of motorization. Their heavier tanks, the British Matilda and the French Char B, were impervious to much of the German anti-tank weaponry. On paper, they should have been able to beat the Germans, but wars are not fought on paper. From the German perspective, there are three tangible advantages that help explain why they were able to pull off a military upset, although the speed and decisiveness in which they did is perhaps another matter. First, their air force, the Luftwaffe, was markedly superior in terms of effectiveness than that of the Allies. Older accounts have stressed the importance of German air superiority and the flying artillery it provided for ground troops. Recently, some historians have sought to challenge this myth of Teutonic prowess by correctly pointing out that some of the French planes were actually quite good and the battlefield accuracy of the German Stuka dive bomber has been exaggerated. Perhaps. But that doesn't quite change the fact that it was the French soldiers who were getting strafed and bombed much more so than their German adversaries. The French Air Force suffered from a lack of clear strategy, sluggish communications, and a woefully inadequate training regimen. 
The state of disorganization was such that French planes averaged less than one sortie a day, whereas German fighters were averaging four. That basically means even if the French had quality planes, they only flew a fraction of the air missions flown by the Germans. Also, while it is correct to point out that World War II pilots wildly inflated damage they think they've done to the enemy, there is another consideration. In warfare, a soldier who is neutralized, impeded, or panicked is often just as useless as one who is dead. Control of the air, in particular during the early war years, had a pronounced effect on ground troops, even if it was more psychological than material. As one British report noted in 1941, there was a ludicrous anxiety regarding the power of aircraft and the effect produced on the troops appear all out of proportion to the actual damage inflicted. In short, attacking aircraft scared the hell out of troops, even if they didn't do much damage. Secondly, the Germans, soldier for soldier, were noticeably more efficient than their allied counterparts. This isn't because of some mystical quality inherent in Germans. It was a product of the choices made by their military establishment. For instance, as fans of the World of Tanks series will undoubtedly know, the paper statistics such as armor thickness and gun armament of the German Mark III and IV tanks were quite middling. But these German tanks were effective on the battlefield. It's hard for combat simulations to take into account factors such as ergonomics or that the German tank crews could easily refuel their vehicles through gas cans whereas the French had to use specially designed fuel truck. Another thing to consider is that the German Mark III and Mark IV tanks had three-man turrets and wireless radios, which allowed their tank crews to have a smooth division of labor. Meanwhile, many of the French tanks had one-man turrets, which overworked their commanders, and they were still using signal flags to communicate to other tanks in their battalions. So this made the German tanks much more flexible in their ability to adapt to battlefield situations as they came up. In general, French communications were also lethargic at the strategic level. And this was a critical flaw as French doctrine stipulated that counterattacks needed precise written orders from high command. So if you were a younger French officer on the ground and saw the Germans making overly aggressive moves that left them vulnerable right before your eyes, which they did all the time, you couldn't make an attack. You had to twiddle your thumbs until your superiors, who were wedded to a belief in the defense, authorized it in writing. By contrast, local German commanders were encouraged to take the initiative according to the situation on the ground. Well, encouraged might be overstating the case. An example to illustrate this is General Heinz Guderian, who is often credited with being the brains behind tank warfare. Guderian was, to put it politely, a difficult subordinate. He was not keen on following orders that he disagreed with, and he made enough enemies among his peers that one of them, Hans von Kluge, actually challenged him to a duel with pistols. This duel never took place, as Hitler told both to grow up and attend to their duties, but 
It says much when Hitler's is the voice of reason. Unfortunately for the French, Guderian also happened to be one of the few military theorists that had battlefield chops. He was designated to command the elite panzer divisions that were to make the crucial advance at Sedan, and Guderian admitted in his memoirs that he had no intention of stopping until he reached the Atlantic seaboard and cut the Allied armies in two. Twice he clashed with his immediate superior, von Kleist, and disregarded what he felt were overly cautious orders, including one that came directly from high command. An indignant von Kleist flew to Guderian's headquarters and, after a heated argument, relieved him of command. Undeterred and convinced he was correct, Guderian waited for what he anticipated and quickly received, a message from his army group commander, von Rutstedt, who refused to confirm his dismissal and authorized a, quote, reconnaissance in force, provided his headquarters remained where it was. Guderian promptly seized on this flimsy premise and directed his panzers to the English Channel while keeping some of his staff at the original location. He was eventually vindicated by results. The rapid breakout from the Meuse bridgehead by Guderian and Erwin Rommel, another aggressive panzer general who was never given an order he felt compelled to obey, were crucial in sowing confusion and despair within the Allied High Command. Such blatant insubordination would only be tolerated by dramatic results. As far as the Battle of France is concerned, that is precisely what Guderian and Rommel delivered. The effect of all this was that typically the Germans acted with alacrity and efficiency, whereas French reactions were hampered by confusion and disorganization. Thirdly, the German plan struck precisely at the Achilles heel of the Allied defense. Originally, the Germans had intended to attack France through Belgium, which is exactly what the Allies had expected them and where they sent their best forces. But history is filled with episodes of dumb luck. Poor weather kept prompting Hitler to delay the attack, and the lack of proper security allowed the Allies to get a hold of the original unimaginative plan. This allowed the relatively obscure Erich von Manstein, who would emerge as one of Germany's best strategists to push for his sickle-cut alternative, which moved the axis of attack south to what was the weakest point in the Allied disposition, the heavily wooded Ardennes. This was a bold plan that would get shot down immediately at a staff school because it exposed the elite German panzer divisions on both flanks to an alert and adaptive opponent. But as noted before, the Allies were neither. The effect of this development was that the best Allied divisions headed to the north and the east, away from the Germans and away from their own supply lines, in short, doing exactly what the Germans wanted them to do. If the main German thrust penetrated the two natural defensive barriers, the Ardennes Forest and the Meuse River, there wasn't anything to stop them from cutting off and trapping the bulk of the Allied armies, except for outnumbered French reservists, many of whom never even saw the weapons they were supposed to use before they were mobilized. 
I think the luck factor needs to be emphasized because while the Germans have this reputation for military prowess, the reality is in 1940, any honest assessment would conclude they had just about every break fall in their favor. Although one could argue that generals and armies make their own luck. More on this later. An important book that debunks the myth of the almighty German Blitzkrieg is Karl Heinz Frisier's The Blitzkrieg Legend. Frisier argues correctly that the German generals themselves did not anticipate rapid success, and the dynamic advances made by their panzers were not part of a coherent plan. Rather, they were more often improvisational or acts of insubordination, like the aforementioned Guderian's reconnaissance in force to the Atlantic seaboard. It was by accident that the Germans created what is thought of as Blitzkrieg, and it worked because their officers were trained to be more flexible, while their opponents were still thinking of refighting World War I. When we put all this together, there is a compelling military explanation to explain the decisiveness of the German victory in the 1940 campaign. And a military explanation is how recent historians such as Ernest May and Julian Jackson have interpreted the Allied defeat. When the German offensive began on the 10th of May against the low countries of the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg, it looked to the Allies as if the Germans were repeating the 1914 Schlieffen Plan. The attack was both proficient and brutal. Paratroopers had seized key bridges and choke points within hours, and the Luftwaffe destroyed the historic city center of Rotterdam. And so, according to plan, the best Allied armies marched north to meet them. But unknown to Allied intelligence, the Germans had concentrated their most potent striking force, seven out of their ten panzer divisions to the south. Within just three days, they had established bridgeheads across the Meuse River, this was hardly inevitable. The French reservists, although at guns, did fight. But the qualities of military leadership were critical here. When the German troops reached the Meuse, their commanders often accompanied them and were able to quickly make necessary adjustments while also providing a morale boost to the assault troops. The most extreme example here was General Owen Rommel, who personally directed the crossing while under fire at Dinot. What we have here are inexperienced French troops wedded to a bad military doctrine characterized by rigidity and to defense, fighting against the cream of the German armies whose commanders were flexible and seized the initiative. By May 15th, the Germans had broken through and the path to the Channel Coast and the encirclement of the Allied armies in the north lay open. On this date, just five days after the invasion had begun, the French Prime Minister Paul Reynaud remarked to his British counterpart Winston Churchill, We have been defeated. We are beaten. We have lost the battle. Reynaud's despair was indicative of the feeble civilian and military leadership on the French side. The Allied position was certainly precarious, yet the German panzers were ridiculously exposed as they were outpacing their supporting infantry. On paper, 
A quick reorganization and coordinated Allied counterfence could have outflanked the overly aggressive German thrusts and unmasked the very real dangers inherent in Monstein's plan. But again, wars are not fought on paper. And the reality of the Allied armies, with its overly rigid generals and troops trained to fight the last war, meant this window of opportunity passed. When one opportunity passes, sometimes another opens. Churchill ordered any vessel that can float to go get the trapped Allied armies in what they called Operation Dynamo. And it was here that the Germans committed their only serious error. Hitler is usually accused of stopping the German panzers and allowing the British to successfully evacuate their forces at Dunkirk. The reality is the Germans were vulnerable to counterattack, and the Allies began to show some metal that made the German high command nervous. A British counterattack at Arras was driven off. However, it combined with the tenacity of French rearguard actions demonstrated the Allies were not a beaten force, even if their leadership was lethargic. It was the German high command that issued the halt order and that a respected strategist such as Gerd von Rundstedt believed it was wise to consolidate forces for a few days suggests just how outrageously lucky the Germans were in going through with the entire Monstein plan. Also, it's not like the Germans just sat back and watched the Allies at Dunkirk. Reichsmarschall Hermann Goering promised his Luftwaffe, which had performed exceedingly well so far, could deliver the coup de grace. But while air power is a devastating complementary weapon, its high priests have historically overestimated what it could do on its own. Every day during the evacuation starting on May 27th until the final day one week later on June 4th, the Luftwaffe did its best to bomb and strafe the Allied operation. And every day, the British Royal Air Force contested the skies over Dunkirk and the so-called little ships that made up the flotilla sailed, steamed, and even rowed Allied troops off the beaches despite the peril. The German panzers soon resumed the offensive, but it was immediately met with stiff resistance. Hitler didn't let the British evacuate the 338,000 troops who were rescued. It was the one part of the French 1940 campaign that the Allies acted with competence and flexibility. Although what became known as the Miracle of Dunkirk had saved the British expeditionary force, as Churchill admitted in the House of Commons, wars are not won by evacuations. Indeed, the Allies had to leave behind all their heavy equipment, and there wasn't much left between the Germans and Paris. When the Germans resumed their offensive on June 5th, they initially faced the stout defense, but the French had no strategic reserves and no forces to halt any German breakthroughs. On the 10th, the French government abandoned Paris, recognizing that a futile defense would only serve to kill civilians and destroy cultural landmarks. France could no longer sustain effective military resistance, so Marshal Philippe Patin, the hero from Verdun in the First World War, emerged as the government's leader and asked the Germans for an armistice. On June 22nd, just 42 days after the Battle of France had begun, an armistice was signed at the very same railway car where the Allies had forced the German delegation to sign the Treaty of Versailles that ended the First World War. 
Okay, so how do we analyze these events? Two of the most noteworthy studies of the French campaign are called Strange Defeat and Strange Victory. I don't think there is anything strange about it. Sometimes a military force just gets beat and does not require extensive soul-searching, peering into the supernatural, or some historical anomaly to explain the outcome. The Allies had a bad strategy. Their armies were dedicated to an obsolete doctrine and marked by inflexibility. By way of comparison, the Germans had correctly identified the Achilles heel of the Allied position. And because they had concentrated their tank forces, they would have superior strength at the decisive point, which was at Sedan. So, unexpected? Yeah. Shocking? To contemporaries, for sure. But strange? Hardly. The Germans held a strategic initiative throughout the entire campaign, and France's geography, unlike the expanses of the Soviet Union, meant the first decisive defeat was fatal. So I would have concluded two years ago. But the recent military misadventures of the United States, which by far possesses the most varied and sophisticated armed forces on the planet, has still somehow managed to consistently lose wars to adversaries using outdated weapons and Toyota trucks. This has caused me to consider factors beyond the military in explaining why wars are won and lost. It's not that the U.S. just got unlucky, or has some bad generals, or has slackened in its commitment to field the powerful military. The reality is that U.S. failures and wars go back three generations now and are indicative of something deep-rooted. When mulling over whether or not there were deep roots that would help explain the defeat of France in 1940, that brings us to the aforementioned strange defeat, the posthumously published account by Mark Bloch a French-Jewish historian who served in the war and was executed by the Nazis in 1944. Bloch, a deeply committed patriot who volunteered to fight even though he was in his 50s, was unequivocal in his introspection and wrote, I belong to a generation of Frenchmen who have a bad conscience. He believed that the defeat exposed inherent problems in French society that ran, and I'll quote his words, deeper than one dared to imagine. Bloch by no means let the French generals off the hook. He excoriated their terrible judgment, their failures to adapt to a modern world, and their despair at the very country they were to defend. But rather than singling out the military elite as culprits, he instead felt their incompetence was a product of French society, which had put them there in the first place. In short, replacing these generals would not have changed events because a military system is dependent on the society from which it comes. Bloch's critiques of interwar French society are trenchant. He wrote about a selfish trade union movement, a middle class that looked to the past rather than the future, the press and teachers that failed to inform and prepare French society for the danger posed by Hitler, and a society that was undermined by serious internal divisions that failed to match the solidarity and resolution of the previous generation that had won the Great War. Bloch was wise to emphasize these factors, because no matter how well-trained or intelligent soldiers may be, if they do not have a clear cause to die for, 
their combat effectiveness drops off a cliff. These divisions in French society went beyond parliamentary bickering. The only relatively stable government in the 1930s was the short-lived National Front headed by Leon Blum, who was Jewish and became the first socialist prime minister in the history of France. But Pierre Goxat, who after the war would be elected to the Académie Française, spoke for much of the French political right when he referred to Blum as a disjointed, unfrench puppet. Between France and this cursed man, we must choose. He is the very incarnation of everything that sickens our flesh and our blood. And much of the French political left also hated him. French communists never forgave him for not intervening in Spain and what they felt was a betrayal of the revolution. So deep-seated was the communist resentment towards Bloom that they actually approached the Nazi collaborationist Vichy government to testify against him for an upcoming show trial. And this was the most stable of the French governments in the 1930s. Bloom was out of the picture by 1938, but these entrenched divisions intensified. We have contemporary testimony to the partisan, paranoid, hate-filled atmosphere of the French parliament under Paul Reynaud's government just two months before the German invasion. Many French did not want to die for Danzig. Too many in the French establishment blamed the communists for the rot within the French army and did not regard the political left as part of the France they were sworn to defend. The communists, for their part, did not see the France that was fighting Hitler as a legitimate endeavor. Taking their cue from Moscow, which had signed a pact of non-aggression with Nazi Germany, they denounced the war as an imperialist venture, and the party did not order resistance until Hitler broke that pact when he evaded the Soviet Union in 1941. Given such circumstances, Bloch felt the defeat was obvious in retrospect, a polity marked by rot and division that collapsed the moment its inept military caste was pitted against an incomparably better-led opponent. It's important to note that Bloch was not just an angry critic of the Third Republic. He was a renowned historian who spent decades studying these sorts of social processes and witnessed them firsthand as both a civilian and an officer. He wrote a letter to his son in the winter of 1939 to 40, observing that nobody had yet answered that basic question why are we fighting? This is not just a damning indictment from someone who would know but is also corroborated by British observers in France who also reported an uncertainty about fighting the war. It is clear that sectors of the French political left and right did not see the French government or the war as something worth dying for. And that does not even get into Bloch's primary critique that French society as a whole never recovered from World War I and thus failed to adapt to a modern and changing world. Of course, it's one thing to talk about these factors in French society. It's another to demonstrate how they would manifest on the battlefield and thus figure in why the Germans were so quickly and decisively win the 1940 campaign. As I noted before, most modern historiography interprets the defeat as an indictment of the Allied military, especially its terrible leadership as opposed to French society. 
One of the better accounts of this school of thought is Ernest May's Strange Victory, whose title should be seen as a response to Bloch's thesis. May rejects that France was in any greater danger of collapse than Britain or Germany. He believes France was defeated because its generals were incompetent and committed avoidable errors. Events need not have unfolded as they did, and they might have gone the other way. As such, he thinks it is a German victory that needs explaining, not the French defeat, hence his title of strange victory. May is right to downplay the notion that the German military specifically planned or even foresaw this. The reality is that many of Germany's generals were at best lukewarm to Monstein's plan, and it was embarrassing for them that Hitler was more keen on a bold strike than their own high command. But even if the German blitzkrieg is more myth than reality, there were very real reasons why it was a German general who envisioned an aggressive offensive strike and could convince the government to adopt it, why it was German commanders who were willing and able to exploit the openings that they did not necessarily foresee, and why German soldiers fought effectively and tenaciously for the entire war, even during 1945 when they were ridiculously outgunned and objectively stood zero chance of winning, whereas none of these were true for the French. Also, I do not think that Germany or Britain were as susceptible to collapse as France. There were many observers, such as the U.S. Ambassador Joseph Kennedy, who felt Britain would quickly follow France in giving up. But it didn't. That is Winston Churchill's historical importance, and why that speech at the beginning of this episode is so significant. He was able to rally the British people and galvanize the nation to make greater sacrifices and continue to fight even though its prospects were bleak. It is intellectually uncomfortable to think about this too deeply. But German society never collapsed, despite being subjected to round-the-clock strategic bombing that left all of its cities in ruins, its military being so decimated that by 1945 it was conscripting teenage boys and old men to fight, and was led by a bankrupt leadership that was objectively leading the nation to suicidal disaster. The reality is that Bloch was right in his brutally honest assessment that France folded when it got punched in the mouth. Now, this does not mean there weren't French soldiers who fought hard. There is tangible evidence to show this. To take one example, the village of Stone saw spirited fighting and changed hands 17 times between May 15th and May 17th. Another example, in the north, French forces stymied a German advance at the Battle of Jean Bleu, which was crucial in keeping the channel ports in Allied hands that allowed the eventual Dunkirk operation. Estimates varied, but about 60,000 French soldiers were killed during the campaign which means that in 1940, they fought and died at a higher rate than World War I, that very same war infamous for its reckless attacks and high casualties. The issue here is that it's possible to fight hard, yet not have that translate into strategic military success. This is precisely the pattern that fits the U.S. in its failed wars in Vietnam and Afghanistan. In those wars, There were many individual cases in which the firepower and professionalism of the U.S. military gave the enemy hell. 
But deeper-rooted problems meant that the whole was less than the sum of the parts. In military history, it is fashionable to explain outcomes in the vein of Thomas Carlyle, that of grandiose victories and ignominious defeats as resulting from the brilliance or stupidity of the commanders who fought them. It's romantic and exciting, but it's reductionist. Scholars of the 1940 French defeat have certainly spotlighted numerous strategic mistakes on the French military leadership. Why didn't General Blanchard advance after inflicting a bloody nose to the Germans at Hanou? Why did General Hunziger refuse air cover to his troops at Sedan? Why didn't General Gamelin have a strategic reserve to contain the German bridgehead over the Meuse? Why was the French leadership unable to delegate responsibility and incapable of reacting to a rapid war of maneuver? At some point, identifying military errors begins to miss the forest for the trees. Why, after all, were most of France's generals bunglers? The absence of good generals needs explaining. What also begs for an explanation is the lack of what we may say is a fighting spirit on the part of the Allies before the summer of 1940. Why were the Allies so passive? This is especially true in light of the September 1939 German campaign against Poland, when only a token German defense guarded the Rhineland and the French had promised the Poles that they would mount an offensive. It never came. As the French, like the British, were content to sit behind the Maginot Line and wait eight months for the Germans to do something. This was not an army keen on taking initiative or engaging in the attack, which does much to explain why the Germans were rewarded for their reckless advances. The Allies had no intention of bringing about military action to defeat Germany before or during 1940. They contented themselves with dropping propaganda leaflets and hoped their economic blockade would eventually bring down the downfall of the Nazi regime. Aside from the implication that the Allies weren't fully prepared to fight before May 1940, this strategy was dubious as the Allied blockade had a huge breach in it in the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact. As much as time, technology, and circumstances have changed warfare, The importance of being aggressive, taking the initiative, and engaging in the attack have been true since time immemorial and have been emphasized by military theorists from Sung Tzu to Anton Henri Jomini. In war, as with most aspects of life, fortune favors the aggressive and the confident. The French were neither. There is no question that there were instances that the French fought hard. But it was mostly in reaction to getting hit while being caught off balance by the unexpected speed of the German assault. To win in wars, an army must attack. And attacking takes an iron determination and resolve that did not exist on the Allied side in 1940. When considering the proverbial big picture with the fall of France, an undeniable pattern emerges namely that all the historical circumstances, contingencies, and chance occurrences seem to favor the Germans. Why were all the good generals on the German side? 
Why was it that the French officers were so sluggish into reacting to events? Why is it that the French had planes and tanks of high quality, yet failed to use them as often or efficiently as the Germans? Why at the crucial point at Sedan, when the Germans had their elite divisions with high morale, led by a general, Heinz Guderian, who was so aggressive that he disobeyed orders and continued attacking? Why was it at the same battle did the French have reserve troops with low morale, led by an aged general born in 1880, who would later serve in the collaborationist Vichy government after the surrender? Why was it that the Germans by accident discovered Blitzkrieg? Why was it that the French Third Republic collapsed in six weeks, whereas the Nazi regime fought for six years to the bitter end? Why did the German tanks have radios, whereas the French did not? Why was it that the French Prime Minister, Paul Reynaud, who was supposedly a fighter, whimpered to Churchill after just five days that France had lost the battle? An army is a reflection of the society whence it came. Military observers who ignore this reality and just look at the battlefield do so at their peril. When Mark Bloch wrote, the generation to which I belong has a bad conscience, it was a bold statement. It's much more intellectually satisfying to pin the blame on unfortunate circumstances and strategic errors made by a military elite. It's not wrong to rebuke their incompetence and point out instances where they might have acted differently. But one should keep in mind the fine line between what was theoretically possible and what was plausible in light of the historical realities as they were in 1940. That of France with a political leadership that failed to inspire confidence, let alone unity, a military that had long resigned itself to a passive doctrine of defense, a social order that was badly fractured, and a citizenry who for 20 years were reminded of the trauma of the Great War and the need to never fight a war like that again. The basic reasons for the rapid collapse of Allied military resistance were the result not simply of poor strategy, but of a flawed military system. And the military system of a nation is intrinsically tied to the social system of the nation. Mark Bloch was 100% right to highlight this connection. His penetrating analysis may be unsettling because it was in essence a judgment. But real history is more pitiless even than you had been told it was.